everybody and welcome back to Critically Reclaimed, the podcast that used to be called the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club, but now the title is shorter, catchier, and makes slightly less sense. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I too am a film critic. The title makes sense in, in a recycling sense. Um, we are... I guess we're... But we're not like really reclaiming something that's no. been forgotten. Not necessarily, But no. we are... Uh, it might have been forgotten by somebody. Uh, mm-hmm. These are the the purpose of this particular podcast is to delve through all the streaming that is out there. There's mm-hmm. quite a lot of it, and specifically uh, we, the catalog titles, not yeah, the we, new uh, fancy exactly. stuff that everyone's we, talking about. We uh, we understand that there's this huge amount of just film that you can watch in the world. It's not always the best selection. Mm-hmm. It always seems to be that the one film I'm looking for is nowhere to be found. Ain't that the truth? Uh, but there is still quite a good number of classics to be found, and we've been sending polls out to our listeners to vote on which one of these classics that either William or I have not seen, mm-hmm. uh, so we can review it, or reclaim it, as it were. Yeah, whatever, it's fine. It's catchy, that's the important thing. Um, but anyway, yeah, every week on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash network. in addition to all of the other exclusive shows that we have available, you can vote for the movie that we're going to watch next week on Critically Reclaimed. Every week we pick mm-hmm. a new streaming service, or different streaming service at least. We tend to cycle through them eventually. Uh, and uh, again, we each pick two films that we either haven't seen or barely remember so that they can be new to us. Mm. And uh, this week, we decided to go over to the Criterion channel, which, for the month of August, has been focusing on a lot of neo-noirs, and they added a lot of neo-noirs to their selection. Uh, we had a really, really, hmm. like, a good selection of films to well, choose from. Neo, neo-noir, uh, to, to clarify, mm. um, I, I don't recall, it was probably Truffaut who coined the phrase noir to describe a certain kind of American sure. film, but uh, noir is the French word for black, and uh, it, it was meant to describe a certain kind of uh, shadowy photography that was used very typically in a certain kind of hard-boiled crime film. And uh, as such, it started to emerge over the years as a genre unto itself, noir. And yeah. the golden age of noir is seen to be like the mid to late 40s. It's this this uh, short period when there were a lot of American films, fil- detective films coming out. Uh, and at some point in the, after that, at some point in the 70s, mm-hmm. from the 70s, and uh, this like goes all the way up to the 90s, mm-hmm. uh filmmakers who were raised watching those noirs started doing their own more stylized version of those things. A little bit more uh, self-aware, perhaps. I would argue that and the French uh, New Wave filmmakers started doing that. You got mm. Shoot the tree, uh, shoot the Piano Player. Yeah. Uh, you got uh, Breathless to some extent. Mm. Um, basically, for, for me, the noir is... Uh, a lot of people think noir is basically black and white and detectives. And that's kind of the incidental stuff. Mm. Noir is a genre about moral decay yeah, in yeah. which everyone uh, is either just fundamentally kind of a bad person or if they're a good person they tend to be spit up and chewed out by society okay. they're the victims yeah. um, neo-noir for me the cutoff isn't so much that like oh it has to take place in the present day or oh it needs to be in color for me the cutoff is it needs to be after we started realizing that noir had accidentally become a genre mm. and started doing it on purpose. Yeah, yeah. So, We're commenting on not just the moral decay, but also mm. the genre itself. And as soon as there's any level of self-awareness, you're mm. immediately in neo-noir territory. Yeah, and and like you said, Breathless, the, the films of Godard are, mm-hmm. are very much... Uh, deeply influenced by uh, by noir films and were self-aware about it, so you could argue those are the first neo-noirs. Uh, well, shoot the piano the, player was Truffaut, but yeah. Yeah, but the, uh, the term typically applies to a very specific era of uh, usually American mm-hmm. uh, feature films. Mostly American, yeah. Uh, and we're... It was actually... Hold on. To be, I just looked it up. Uh, the term film noir is okay. generally credited to French film critic Nino Frank. Nino Frank. 
Okay. There you go. Credit where credit is due. I, I said Truffaut. Or, or maybe I said Godard. You said Truffaut, but whatever. Truffaut, it's, um, it, it was Dino Frank, apparently. As uh, yeah. as we can tell. So, I, I knew it was one of those French critics. Right. Uh, <laughs> they, they they found it so much about you know the way we talk about movies. Uh, but yeah, uh, neo-noirs started to, maybe not boom, but they were uh, a hip genre for a little bit there in the 1970s here in the United States. And mm. we chose films of that ilk. Um there are a lot that we had seen, a, a lot that I'm very fond of. Um, a lot of people cite Chinatown as one of the biggest examples of, of the neo-noir wave. Mm-hmm. Uh, my favorite is Who Framed Roger Rabbit, <laughs> which is definitely a neo-noir, and I'm not going to hear any, any other arguments. It's definitely riffing on neo-noir. I'm not sure if it actually counts as one. It's a straight-up neo-noir. Just because yes. some, some of the characters might be animated. But, yes. so, uh, many, so many neo-noirs have mega happy endings where everyone's smiling and laughing and everything turned out fine. They, they, they shot the villain, but yeah, it's, it does have a happy ending, which is antithetical to noir. Yeah, whatever. That's, like, that's the thing. There's like a tonal but thing. He goes that to, feel... the, the joke, though, is that like, the, the detective, the private detective, goes into like the dangerous part of town, and he doesn't want to go there because that's where his brother died, and there's a lot of baggage. Mm-hmm. And he goes there, and it's a like, cartoon world where everything's yeah. like wacky and silly. And, but it's kind of like scary too. Like oh yeah, really it's like really intense. Yeah. Like human beings are not are like not designed to withstand uh, that much wackiness. Like he, he just needs to take an elevator up, and Droopy is the elevator operator, yeah. and it like mutates his body. It's moving so quickly, and then yeah. he jumps out of a building. And, it's its own brand of hell. Yeah. Um, so so it, it it counts. Yeah, I think my but, favorite neo noir is Bound okay, uh, by the yeah, Wachowskis, yeah. Uh, which is. Ooh, easily one of the best films of the nineties. Uh, just, just see it. What a slick, like, awesomely clockwork, sexy production that is. I'm surprised like, they haven't really done that one for stage yet. That'd be good, th- like a good yeah. three hander because it's got three amazing characters. Yeah, it could. I mean, they've done stuff like Wait Until Dark. You know, you mm. can totally do like another apartment centric. Uh, yeah, that could work. Mm. Um, but in any case, uh, the winner of the poll uh, for this particular uh, week was a film that is. Or at least was when it initially came out, not very well received, mm. didn't make a lot of money, but gradually built up more and more critical acclaim until now it is considered one of the best neo noirs ever made and mm. is arguably considered one of the best films ever made by Robert Altman, who is considered one of the best American filmmakers. And the film is The Long Goodbye. Uh, where did you go last night, Marlon? Oh, is this where I'm supposed to say, what is all this about? And he says, uh, shut up, I asked the question. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Elliot Gould is Philip Marlowe in Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye. There's a long goodbye, and it happens every day. He has two friends in the world, a cat and a murderer. He knows who the cat is. He's not so sure about the murderer. Too late you turn your head. You know you said the long goodbye. Elliot Gould in The Long Goodbye from United Artists. Rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. Uh... This is a this is a a, a Philip Marlowe story, sort of faster than that, please. Okay, not so long a goodbye. <laughs> uh, Philip Marlowe is the detective uh, invented by Raymond Chandler, uh, mm. who is the uh, featured character in The Big Sleep, um, and in this version of the Philip Marlowe myth. Philip Marlowe is a very different character. Yeah. Uh, he's played by Elliot Gould uh, and Elliot Gould. Look up what people said about Elliot Gould, because uh, it, I, I want to, I want this to be substantiated. There was a time when Elliot Gould was considered the sexiest man alive. Yep. There was nobody hotter in the world than Elliot Gould. There was even a joke about that on the Simpsons. Yep. Like, hey, do you want to go to the prom with me? I wouldn't go to the prom with you if you were Elliot Gould. <laughs> Uh, he was called the sexiest actor alive by Glamour magazine. Mm-hmm. That was that was the deal. Uh, Elliot Gould. If you're if the name is not quite clicking for you, where might you have seen Elliot uh, Gould? Maybe, maybe uh, he Ocean's was, Eleven. He was uh, he was in Ocean's yeah. Eleven, the remake of Ocean's Eleven. Uh, he was in Mash. He was uh, the, the uh, Donald Sutherland's co-stars in most of the mm-hmm. scenes. 
That, um, that is he the, was, the movie of MASH. I think he was Jennifer Aniston's dad. No, was Jennifer Aniston or Courtney Cox's dad on Friends? Oh, I don't he know. Was, I he was, he was someone's dad on Friends. Hang yeah, on, I, I want to look this up. But um, he, you know, kind of settled into... But he was in a, in a his lot later, of, yeah, a lot of uh, yeah. films in the 1970s. He was really mm. huge then. He was in Bob and Carol and Talented Alice. He mm. was in The Silent Partner. Uh, he... He was in Capricorn One. Uh, he he was in an Ingmar Bergman film called The Touch, which I actually haven't seen. I just oh, know I he was know. in that one. Yeah, uh, yeah. He just has a really really long filmography. Uh, and yeah, he played uh, in, he just, played Courtney just, Cox and David going. Schwimmer's dad. Dave, okay. On on Friends, so a lot of people might know him from that. Like if you were like, oh, right, his, they were brother and sister, weren't they? Yeah, weird, right? I, I keep forgetting that detail. But uh, in any case, yeah, he settled in like later in his career to more and more kind of comedic, straightforward comedic mm. roles. But he actually had a really versatile. 1970s and he brought a lot of unusual charisma to a lot of roles that might otherwise have been played really straight hmm. uh phil marlowe is a character who's been played by humphrey bogart he's been played by uh dick powell who frankly i always thought was kind of a weird choice he brought a little bit more movie star to it he's played by robert mitchum uh he is a grizzled hard-boiled detective i've read some of the novels i never read the long goodbye but he's a grizzled detective, mm. tough talking, uh, you know, thinks his way out of jams, solves a lot of crimes. Um, he's the quintessential hard-boiled detective hero. Elliot Gould is not. No. <laughs> Elliot Gould is a very affable, average, I mean, like, he's a good-looking man, but he's not, like, remarkably sexy in, like, that sort of, like, Adonis carved from marble I kind think... of way. He's just this very human he, he's very intelligent yeah. and self-effacing and i think this is very important approachable yeah he's very charming in sort of a conversational uh scenario yeah he's the kind of guy at the party who's like pretty good looking but you know just is very magnetic and you get to talk to him all night yeah i think that's where uh elliot gould's sex symbol status comes from yeah and so he's a very different take on philip marlowe who's traditionally played by these really tough guys um Philip Marlowe in The Long Goodbye has been transposed from, I believe the novel takes place in the 1940s, and this takes place contemporary for when the film was made, the 1970s, mm. in Hollywood. Uh, Hollywood is a great place for, for noir. Uh, it's this weird, spread out, you know, mm. kind of a metropolis, but kind of not. There's all these kind of weird corners and alleyways and different weird art scenes and communities can kind of spring up on their own. I think and uh, there, there's all sorts of different levels of uh, culture and conflict mm. and history and art and violence and yeah you'll never run out of material I, I think los angeles was a good setting for uh film noir as a genre mm -hmm. because of that diversity yeah. there were all these different kinds of neighborhoods and uh the, the and rich this, and the poor live yeah. right next to each other and, yeah. and this was something that really distressed new yorkers there's no like there's no heart of LA. Yeah. It's not like a center and everything spreads out from there. Like, you know, Manhattan or there's five boroughs yeah. in, in uh, New York, in Los Angeles, you can wander a couple blocks and be in like four different cities technically. Yeah. Uh, but just because of the way everything sort of sprawls yeah. out, you might think you're in like this, like, big cultural hub on sunset. But if you take a right and walk North, you've walked into three different residential areas that have nothing in common with each other. Yeah, the yeah. architecture is all over the place. This is like clearly a place where like mm. a lot of like poor college kids live in apartments, but this is clearly a giant house that's owned by a movie star. And it's really difficult to figure out mm. how the fuck this happened like because a lot of LA architecture <laughs> happened. A lot of the architecture happened by chance. A lot of the communities were planned out because racism. But like people, one hundred percent racism. There's a lot of the school districts were districted, mm. like were chosen out because of various bullshit. But um, but also just because there was so much space, a lot of communities were able to actually build up together naturally mm. as well. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's a very odd locale, and especially when you consider that long goodbye isn't so much about movie stars per se but it is about that very particular la fixation with superficiality yeah well, with how we are perceived how, how we're perceived and also um how there are a lot of people here looking to find themselves and i you get the impression from uh, this particular version of philip marlowe that 
he he like the the city is a little bit aimless. Yeah. The uh, the rather famous opening sequence of this movie is just him trying to get the right kind of cat food for his rather picky cat. Yeah, and it's and, like a ten minute sequence. Uh, yeah, it's it, it's it takes up a, like a. You're wondering when the detective story is going to start, and mm-hmm. he goes to the, he puts out cat food. His cat doesn't like it. His cat only likes a certain kind of food. He thinks he can switch it into the right can and trick yeah. his cat. So like he's, he's, he uh, wakes his cat wakes him up at three in the morning, yeah. and his cat's hungry. He doesn't have any cat food. Cat won't eat anything but his particular brand. So he mumbles to himself and he gets up, puts on his jacket, and he's about to go to the local thrifties, which in the seventies was one of the only places that would be open that late. Um, Meanwhile, his neighbors, who are a bunch of, like, yoga instructors who, like, walk around naked and do, smoking pot all the time, and who have, there's no sexual tension whatsoever. Mm. <laughs> They're actually just his mildly annoying neighbors. But they say, hey, we want to make pot brownies. Can you get us some brownie mix? Fine. <laughs> so he goes to the thrifty, he gets the brownie mix, and the thrifty doesn't have the cat food. So when he comes back, he tries to like he locks the cat in the living room so the cat can't see the kitchen. So he can fish out a can of the old cat food, <laughs> put the new cat food in the old can, and then put the lid oh, back it's... on, and then let the and then he he lies to the cat. He's like, "Oh, did I lock you in the living room? I'm sorry. Here, let me feed you your favorite brand of cat food." And then he, he puses, puts it in the dish. He uses the can opener on the already open can and he puts it's, it in the yeah. dish and the cat takes one look at it well trained cat and goes fuck off and then just leaves I, I could watch the whole the whole movie just that like there's yeah. no story or detective story just this guy dealing with like home bullshit yeah dealing with his cat his weird yeah. neighbors it's it's but it's actually like a really it's, it's interesting because on one hand it's working in this wonderfully subversive way where this is not what you think a film noir is supposed to begin. Mm. A film noir is supposed to begin in an office with a femme fatale walking in saying, I need you to find my ex-husband or something wild like that. Or, or, Or a murder or something. And instead, it opens with Elliot Gould trying to buy cat food for his cat. But on the other hand, thematically... It's all right there. Because <laughs> right. what we see is that Philip Marlowe is a guy who will do literally anything for his friend, no matter how inconvenient it is. Mm. Which pans out, which starts paying off literally the next minute when an old friend of his uh, comes to his front door and his face is scratched. And he says, I had it out with my wife. I, I need to just get out of here. Would you mind driving me to Tijuana? And <laughs> and, uh, like, and he says, sure. And Ellie Gould's like, And in the process of all of this, his cat, like, runs out of the apartment and he's trying to find his cat and he never gets his... The cat we will not see again. This is also Mm -hmm. important. He drives the guy to fucking Mexico. The guy gets out with his luggage and says, Okay, thanks. And 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 Billy Gould's like, Okay, bye. And on the way back, the cop said, Hey, wait a minute. We think that guy just killed his wife. And Elliot Gould, who knew that guy for a long time, refuses to believe that. Uh And he will be the one person who says, I don't think... This guy, uh, is it Lennox is the guy? Uh, let me look. Um, Terry Lennox. Yeah. yeah. Terry, Terry Lennox. Lennox Terry. Is, I'm the one person. He, he, I don't think he did it. Yeah. I know him too well. He wouldn't do that. He's play, I, I just looked up the actor. He's played by an actor named Jim Bouton. He doesn't have a big yeah. role in that. Uh, no. But, uh, and uh, Jim Bouton was actually, I believe, a baseball player. Not a professional oh, actor. Oh, okay. Um, so they, the police, finding the body of Terry Lennox's uh, wife, uh, find out that Terry Lennox went to see... Philip Marlowe. Mm. They arrest Philip Marlowe. Philip Marlowe is given the runaround. He spent he spends three days in jail, and he's finally let out when the police just say, "Oh yeah, we found Terry Lennox. He killed himself." And, yeah, and Philip like, Marlowe's like, "Oh, I have a lot of unanswered questions." And the police say, "Fuck off!" And, and so you know he's what? off to solve the crime. Um, if if the that whole element if that had ended there, if we never heard anything else more about that case. Mm-hmm. We've been totally in keeping with this movie. Yeah. There's like, a, if if there's he just a... dropped it and he just didn't say, hey, that nothing adds up here. Mm-hmm. This is sort of a world where things like they the the plot makes sense. It makes more sense than a lot uh, of but, other Raymond Chandler novels. Yeah. But or uh, movies anyway. But I think uh, the brilliance of Robert Altman is he knows that noir is made up of character and small character moments yeah. as characters interact and that the plot actually doesn't matter all that much. Yeah. The plot is an excuse in mm-hmm. a film noir for characters to meet who might not otherwise yeah, have met, a, and for people to investigate the past and the lives of people who might otherwise have wanted to keep their yeah. secrets. Uh, one of my favorite noirs of recent years, uh, Inherent Vice. Oh, yeah. Uh, to, I, I know you're not a fan, but... Uh, I, I, I like the 
absolutely fine. It's just just far from my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah, I just... it, it's brilliant in that it is very pointedly incoherent. The plots just don't make any sense. And yep. the, the, the main character is really stoned all the time. Like he can't really put things together. There comes a point near the end of that movie where he's like, I don't know how to solve any of this. And I think somebody says to him point blank, what would feel best to take care of? And that's like, like the screenwriter. Like, I remember, I remember yeah. watching this. Like this is like the screenwriter just saying, I can't resolve everything in the last 20 minutes of this movie. Uh, and so someone just says at the end of the day, fun. which subplot would be the most emotionally satisfying for you to wrap up? Mm-hmm. And so he's like, okay, the Owen Wilson one. And okay, fine. fine. Yeah, so, <laughs> we'll, solve that we'll one. That yeah. And that's the only one they wrap up. There's all these loose threads in that movie. It's really great. I love that. And actually I was thinking about Inherent Vice a lot while I was watching this movie. And the Big Lebowski, because these were also mm. these are also like neo noirs, which are very self reflexive mm. and have a very definite sense of humor, much like The Long Goodbye, which is a funny movie. It's a serious well, movie, but and, it has humor in it. And also, the the protagonists are all kind of like detached and laid back. Yeah. Like they're not so emotionally swept up by the bleakness of Los Angeles, no. and they're not like super obsessed with the case. They're mm. they're easily distracted, but they're always like on the ball. Like they're mm. never like a bad detective. They're just Really chill. And I'm watching it. I'm realized that now that I've seen this movie, this is one of those movies where everything kind of film history kind of clicks into place. <laughs> yeah. I realized like, okay, so the Coen brothers were riffing on this a little bit. Oh, absolutely. Because clearly the yeah. opening with like the dude going to the market to get milk mm. and yet being talked up as this like private detective hero, that's clearly the long mm. goodbye. In fact, I'm pretty sure um, Martin Short's character in Inherent Vice is dressed and made up specifically to look like Henry Gibson's character in this movie, and they play similar types of characters. Oh, I, I wouldn't have put that together. Yeah, yeah I, was, I, I saw Henry Gibson in this movie. I'm like, was that Martin Short? No, it couldn't have been Martin. Oh, I see what they did. That's cute. So this is a movie that clearly like a lot of people have made a lot of neo-noirs are huge fans of, and they've been riffing on it for a while without telling me. Well, this is one of those ones that uh, we, we just assume that critics have seen. It, I know, it, I get it. It took me a while to get this one. I've seen it a couple times, and, yeah. and I do like it a lot. Oh, I love yeah. this movie now. I really, <laughs> really do. This is actually probably my favorite Philip Marlowe movie now. Mm. Um, and I'm and I'm a fan. I've, again, I've read some of the novels. I've seen a lot of the other adaptations. Mm. Um, I think Elliot Gould is my favorite Philip Marlowe. Because there's this thing that, like... I was looking at some of the old reviews, and they were talking about how, oh, Elliot Gould is a slap in the face to the legacy of Philip Marlowe. And I'm like, I don't think he is. I think he's everything Philip Marlowe always was, but with a slightly different tone. Mm. When you think about the grizzled, hard-boiled, like, inner dialogue uh, that Philip Marlowe has had in a lot of the books and other movies. Mm. You know, it's like, yeah, the Wayne Strip seats of Los Angeles. Elliot Gould does all of that, but he mutters it to himself like a sad sack. It's like he's Popeye. Like, he's like <laughs> another great Altman movie, but like, it's he's basically just like all of those like big inner Moloch moments. He's saying it to himself like, God, more shit I gotta do. Like, he, like he, oh, another two more killers walked in the room. He's more Fuck exhausted it. and put upon than yeah. he is jaded or hardened. He's not yeah, hard. He's actually not a bad guy. Like, he, he's not he's like. He's not hard boiled. He's not yeah. even soft boiled. He's just yeah. sort of lightly simmering. And, yeah. uh, and, his reaction to his neighbors, I think, says everything we need to see. Because yeah. uh, there's this trope in film noir. You said you know it takes place in an office, and the femme fatale comes in, and yeah. there's always this uh, evil sexuality floating around. Yeah, sexuality is what is, drives men to sin in a lot yeah, of film yeah. noirs, and, and women sometimes, but usually it's the men that are considered the, well, and, and, yeah, the, 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 the people who are susceptible to. Oh, you'll have sex with me? Well, of course I'll kill yeah, everyone you've ever met. Yeah, there's there's uh, women are are t- in in film noir typically de- depicted as like uh, uh, vamps or succubi, and then mm-hmm. the men are uh, sad sacks, dupes, or really eager to uh, to commit crimes and the, for the uh, sake of sex. And the uh, the heroes are often the people who might enjoy a good sex, mm. but won't let a good sex get in the way of solving a crime. Uh, I get the sense from uh, this Philip Marlowe that like. Not not that he's, uh, he would say no to a lady, but he has all of these nude ladies living next door to him, mm-hmm. and they're constantly getting high and doing yoga, and they're mm-hmm. just naked all the time. Yeah. And he doesn't look at them lasciviously ever. No. He, like, he understands this is just a weird thing that happens in Hollywood, and like, mm-hmm. I, I forget which character it is that comes over and is like, wow, all those nude ladies, that's pretty titillating. And I was like, oh. 
whatever. Look, they're just always out there. Yeah, like every single person who comes over to his apartment is like shocked or or impressed. Like, God damn, Marlo, you got it made, don't you? And Marlo's like, they're okay. (laughs) And Marlo is interesting because he has no sexual interest. He's no romantic interests in this movie. Mm. He isn't interested in that. He doesn't care about that. Marlo in this movie only cares about friends. That's mm-hmm. the only kind of people he really gives a shit about. And there's nothing romantic about that. It's just about who is there for me and who am I loyal to. Mm-hmm. Um, no one really comes on to him very hard. Uh, and it, everyone who even makes the slightest pass at him, he's sort of like, I got, I got work to do, but thanks. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like I'm good. Um, the, the, it's interesting though because the plot. So he's he's gonna find out like if Terry Lennox really killed his wife, mm-hmm. but the plot kicks in when he gets another case, and in true kiss kiss bang bang fashion, the two cases, they're the same case. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it turns out that there's a woman from the exact same neighborhood that Terry Lennox lives in that has called him the next day or the day he gets out of jail. And says, I need you to find my husband. He's gone missing. Mm. He's a famous author, but he's also an alcoholic. And every once in a while, he gets completely wasted and decides to check himself into rehab. But they never know where. And he's not at any of his usual places. Could you please find my husband? Mm. And Christopher Marlowe is like, sure. Hey, do you know that Terry Lennox guy who happened to live a couple next doors down from you? She's like, oh, yeah. That'll be important later. And I'm like, okay, cool. And, uh... It turns out uh, the the author is played by Sterling Hayden. Great actor, Sterling Hayden. <laughs> He's so and gruff and wonderful. Sterling Hayden worked with Kubrick. He was in uh, Doctor Strange, Love and the Killing. Yeah, uh, those so maybe good. his most popular roles. But here he's playing like Hemingway. If Hemingway kind of sucked. <laughs> <laughs> So, Hemingway. Oh, uh, yeah, depend, depending on your mileage with Hemingway. I'm not a fan. <laughs> I've None. never been a fan. Every time someone's enemy of Hemingway, I'm like, can I buy an adjective? Can I just throw an adjective in here for funsies? I, I read Hemingway. It's like, oh, you want to be Whitman so bad. <laughs> There's a story I heard, and I can never remember who the other author was, and it pisses me off. Okay. But it's pro- it's pro- I'm sure it's apocryphal anyway. But the, let's just say, for example, uh, the other author in question is F. Scott Fitzgerald. Okay. Hemingway had just heard that F. Scott Fitzgerald had been declared by some major publication uh, the greatest, uh, America's greatest living author. Mm. Hemingway, of course, is angry, and we'll talk about this to who, anyone who will talk to him or buy him a drink. And he's really loaded. At which point, someone says, "You know, you know, you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald's sitting right over there, right?" And Hemingway looks over, and apparently, this whole time, F. Scott Fitzgerald's been sitting right there, just reading a newspaper, minding his own fucking business. <laughs> and Hemingway goes up to F. F. Scott Fitzgerald, or that's the person I remember it being in this version of the story, and he puts a fork, tines down on his arm, like mm. one on his forearm, one on his upper arm, and then bends his arm so that the fork bends without puncturing the skin. Okay. And he says, hey, F. Scott Fitzgerald, can you do this? <laughs> and F. Scott Fitzgerald takes one look at Hemingway and says, no. But I am America's greatest living author. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Probably apocryphal. I probably got the author wrong either way. Hemingway. That's a damn funny story. <laughs> a, a tear started to escape from Heming- Hemingway's eye, but he somehow sucked it back into his tear duct. <laughs> Went back over to the bar, downed eight <laughs> gallons of whiskey. God. Anyway. You could hear screaming. It was his liver. <laughs> Jesus. Anyway, uh, so Sterling Hayden plays a guy who's, <laughs> at the end of his one. career, he's married to a much younger woman. Uh, their marriage is not going well. Oh, goodness, no. Uh, and uh, But Elliot Gould manages to track him down pretty quickly. He's a good detective. I like that. Mm. Um, it, it's not like so subversive that he's like a hack detective or a bad detective. Does his job really, really well. Quickly tracks him down to the right rehab center. When they say, we don't have anyone by that name there. He immediately acknowledges that that's a lie because they don't even check or anything. So he just starts wandering around and he notices that Henry Gibson, the doctor who's in charge of this rehab center, is keeping Sterling Hayden there. But he's also being really weird about Mm. playing hardball with Sterling Hayden paying him. Yeah, And one gets the impression that he's not paying him for what we think he's paying him for, which would be rehab. 
Uh, this will also be important later. Elliot Gould uh, basically just walks in and just says, "Hey, I'm here to take Sterling Hayden away." And and Henry um, Henry Gibson's like Henry Gibson's like, "Well, he's he's here. Yeah, I, I just have you thrown out." And he's like, "Isn't that a lot of bother?" Anyway, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> I love that he's just counting on his laziness, mm. and then he does. He gets Sterling Hayden home, and that also feels like the end of the movie. <laughs> it also feels like we've wrapped mm. shit up. But uh, unfortunately, there's a couple other loose ends, one of which is that Terry Lennox apparently didn't just kill his wife. He also absconded with like $355,000 of mob money, which he neglected to mention before. It's worth mentioning that all of these revelations aren't presented as big revelations. They're all just the most matter of fact things. Guy walks, seriously, like after Marlowe comes home after solving like the Sterling Hayden thing, just comes back up to his apartment, he's about to get his mail, and then a bunch of like goons are there and it's like, hey, we're goons. And he's like, oh, hi. What, Can I get up? my mail? Nope. Come on in. We're goons. And he's like, okay, goons. And he goes in and the goons are there and they're just like, okay, let's and break the place down, boys. There's there's a certain cool to it, but I would not describe this character as cool at all. Like, who, like Ellie Gould? Uh, yeah. Yeah, he's not. He's, he just, he's unflappable. Yeah. That's just, what it is. Nothing shakes him. He's like, he, he he's always mildly annoyed, he, he but like he's, he's also too tired to, to deal with yeah, anything. Like, yeah. I can't. I just had a long day at work. Like I, so when I, they're like when they're like breaking up all, all of his stuff and everything, and he's just like, same shit, different day. And then the guy says, "Listen, I think you're lying. I know you drove this guy to Mexico. I know he had the money. Uh, I need you uh, to give me that money." Mm-hmm. And Ellie goes like, "I don't have the money, and I never saw the money." And at this point, this guy, this scene fucked me up because by this point, this movie has been pretty laid back. The guy's girlfriend is there, and he talks about how much he loves her. He's like, next to my wife, she's the only person I've ever loved. She's wonderful, she's beautiful. And then he breaks a Coke bottle over her head. And everyone, even his own goons, are shocked by this. Mm. I love the reaction shot of like these goons who are like all tough and like ready to beat up Elliot Gold. And it's like, whoa, we did not sign up for this. And she's in pain, and it's really horrible. It's, there's nothing like cool about this. This is just violence. This is mm. horrible violence. And he looks at Elliot Gould and says, I did that to someone I love, and I don't even like you. And I'm like, You're, I'm actually scared of this guy. Well, he doesn't I'm, seem like a scary guy in conventional movie terms, but I'm more scared of this guy than any James Bond villain. I'm I'm scared of him, but at the same time, he's so over-the-top evil, you can tell he's he doesn't belong in this universe. It's like, what are you doing? I have, I, this, you're not making any point with that. Mm-hmm. You're just being a dick. Well, I believe... I, like, you're, sorry, not, Whitney, you're not threatening me. How long, how long have you lived in Hollywood? You've <laughs> never run across just a dick before? Of, of course I have. That's my point. We have those people. We have those people, but in I'm, I'm saying in, in the universe of this film, it's... <laughs> I've run into those people in a Bristol Farms. Like, he's, he's not changing the tone of the film into there's a lot of menace here. It's like, no. oh, there's just... A crazy guy who doesn't understand what the rules are. But here's the thing, it, though. It, it comes across differently than movie villainy oh, agreed. does. Oh, so, I agree. Uh, so I wouldn't compare him to, like, a James Bond villain. No, I'm not comparing him to a James Bond villain. Right. What I'm saying is he's, he's different from that. And oh. I think the fact that this movie, he's just comes in like he's from a different story, almost. Uh-huh. A, that's very Hollywood. That's very Los uh-huh. Angeles. That they're just all kinds of people just shoved in together. Um... The fact that the violence is shocking because we've had nothing like that so far mm. is it doesn't feel like it's breaking that contract with the audience because we were always told this was noir. People have already died. They've died of camera, but we've they've already died. Mm. So this is like our fault for getting too laid back. Okay. You know? Or a little little. And this too is almost Elliot Gould's fault for getting too laid back as well, because he was really kind of taking everything really just on the chin and mm. actually no, there could be consequences if things go badly here. Uh, so Nalia Gould is also on the hunt for all of this money or else he could die. Uh, my, one of my favorite bits in the movie is when, uh, this, uh, this villain whose name I cannot remember off the top of my head. Who's the bad guy? Is it Marty Augustine? Oh, um, uh, oh golly. Uh, I think it's Marty Augustine. Hmm. Uh, anyway, he, uh, yeah, he's played yeah, by Mark, Mark Rydell. Mark Rydell. He's played yeah, by Mark Rydell. Yeah. Uh, he he tells one of his goons to 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 stay at Marlowe's place and follow him wherever he goes. Hmm. And I love that Marlowe a immediately gives him the slip before he even realizes it. 
comes back and then walks up to him and says, hey, here you're going to be following me today. Listen, traffic sucks in LA. I'm going to this address. I'll meet you there if we get lost. And he and he, he did. It wasn't, yeah. even, wasn't even the wrong address. He's He gets to the address and the guy, like, he's about to walk into this building. And this goon walks up to him and says, oh, hey, I'm here to follow you. It's like, well, you're not supposed to be seen. Get back in the car. The guy's like, oh, sorry. And he goes to the car and lets this and lets Elliot Gould walk into a building and have a whole conversation he'll know nothing about. <laughs> Is this a is this a comedy film? I would say so. Sure, uh, it's it, it's not um, it's not really a satire. It's just sort of a, a light. It's funny in that it takes a lightweight approach to material that is typically handled with a lot of gravitas. Yeah, and from there, that juxtaposition, there is a lot of humor. But at the same time, it's so uh, such a, a, a subdued form of humor. It doesn't really read as a comedy in a lot of its more comedic moments. No, in fact, in, in fact, a lot of seventies dramas, mm. movies that would be called serious dramas today, had kind of the same sense of humor, which is mm. that bad things are happening, but people are funny, and sometimes they react in a kind of a funny way. Yeah. Elliot Gould is allowed to be Elliot Gould in this situation, mm. which it, automatically makes it a little bit of a comedy. And, and that's what uh, Robert Altman was trying to, to do. Robert Altman uh, is a filmmaker. Known mostly for, uh, I guess, what he, what you might call a realist drama, where yeah. he put a lot of uh, and a lot of ensemble pieces. He put a lot of characters in his movies. There were scenes where a lot of people talk over each other and talk mm. at the same time. He tries mm. to get just a sense of place with a lot of people chattering. No, no, nothing feels like it's on a proscenium stage and everything has yeah, been designed yeah. for you to see everything exactly that you're mm. supposed to see. You're it, supposed to just watch people interacting and find the story because that's how life works. Except for that one time he took a lot of acid and made Popeye. And that's bless like the, him for that's it. That's the one weird outlier it is. In his bless him career. for that shit. Otherwise that he's doing amazing. films like Nashville, which yeah. are actually like really sprawling and intimate at the same time. Yeah. Uh, and and there are other filmmakers from the seventies as well, uh, like Schlesinger, and uh, I, I hate to bring them up, but but Polanski and, and Woody sure. Allen worked in this milieu. They and, did. Um, uh, so this, yeah, this like kind of very uh, laid back sense of humor is kind of doesn't read quite the same way to a modern audience because we're so used to comedy looking so much different. But were you than we're this. used to movies just flat out telling you what they are? Like, think about how many young they're people... they're so story oriented now. Well, yeah. also style oriented as well. Mm-hmm. Think about how many young people probably were introduced to the idea of hard boiled film noir by a movie like Sin City. Oh, which, yeah, is which is all like yeah. everything is like pumped up to a hundred, and the idea of it is that we're taking these real movies and we're pumping them up to a hundred. But for a lot of people, that might have been that that might be their baseline mm. for something like that. And you never know; you never know what someone's first thing is going to be. Yeah, and you, sometimes that just happens. But, but Sin, like, Sin City is practically an animated film, yeah. and. Uh, it, you compare that to something like The Long Goodbye, which oh God, is can you imagine just what a like weird a double feature that would be? downright laconic in comparison. Yeah, um, what, what would be like a classic, a classic nineteen forties noir mm-hmm. that would most closely resemble something like Sin City? I'd say like Asphalt Jungle. Yeah, uh, Asphalt Jungle makes which, sense. Which uh, um, what, one of the earlier ones? I'm trying to think. Well, of like that's what's, really, what's something that what's has really that stylized pulpy. nature to it? Yeah. Like that's really fucking stylized. And I'm actually like, like it's it's quieter, but I would almost say Rafifi. Rafifi feels oh, yeah, kind yeah. of arch. Um, Rafifi's great. By R- Rafifi's light, light, yeah. lightweight on its toes. But honestly, though. I think Asphalt Jungle is probably. I think you probably right. hit it on the head right there. I think that's probably the closest. But that kind of like. Not just chiaroscuro, extreme blacks and whites, uh, heavy emphasis on production design, storytelling, not just the crime and sex-oriented narrative, uh, but also how action-packed something like Sin City is. It's not just about moral decay, it's about moral decay, and also we're having a bunch of shootouts and car chases and shit. Yeah. That was never a thing. No, that no, was no, there not. Was, that's that. that Fillmore is evolved over not time. Yeah. action based. There might be yeah. a, like a gunfight yeah. in one scene where like one guy gets shot in the hand. Yeah, like that's that's how some it of does. more action than others. Or, but or like maybe that like the the detective catches the bad guy and like has him up against the wall. It's like right. I I can get you out of this. Right. I pay pay you money, and he shoots him. Like that's his like, action. Well, Vertigo begins dead. with like a chase across a bunch of rooftops, for example. Yeah. After that, not a lot of action in that shit. There's another chase up a staircase. 
That's it. <laughs> it's not about this kind of like intense incident. It's about mood and character mm. and again moral decay. What happens when? Because at this point, where film noir was starting to become a more prominent genre that could even be recognized. Because initially, these were just crime movies and thrillers that just happened to emerge from Hollywood and then eventually film critics said there are recurring motifs here that make this its own genre Um, not unlike for example like the badass cinema of the 80s where these were initially just action movies and people realized that the very specific like sort of uberman mentality of a lot of films like Commando and Cobra kind of formed their own cinematic dialogue or cinematic language rather um but yeah, these are movies that were coming off of the end of World War I, uh, political de- uh, political deterioration in Europe, hmm. the end of World War II again. Uh, these were films that were about people who had gone through some shit and a world that was going through some shit. Hmm. And it, it might have been heightened, but it wasn't really being romanticized. It was mostly kind of sad. Oh, that actually uh, brings up an interesting point because a, a lot of those detectives from the 40s and the 50s mm-hmm. uh, were, were veterans. Yeah. And they were stained by the war. Yeah, uh, a lot of was, the criminals were too. I'm like, yeah, and, you, you, we send a, we sent a whole bunch of people off to war, and they came back, and all they really knew how to what to do was uh, to be organized and shoot people. Mm-hmm. And then we didn't give them jobs. So, and so, so guess what they what, did? Wouldn't you know what the mob formed after yeah, World War One? That's and, how uh, it happened, more or less. Uh, this must be the Vietnam version of that, probably because. Uh, uh, the attitudes around the Vietnam War were quite different than that of World War Two. Yeah. I don't think they ever specifically say. Elliot I don't. Th- I don't think he's a soldier. But if you think of a reaction to war mm-hmm. being uh, the rise of film noir, that would explain why there was a boom of it in the 1970s, mm-hmm. uh, because there's this big reaction to the Vietnam War. Yeah. And the Vietnam War was not seen as a noble enterprise, and it was protested very, very heavily, and the draft was protested mm-hmm. very heavily, and trying to get along here back in the States when all of this needless violence was happening out in the world led to a kind of resignation. Mm -hmm. It wasn't about, I've seen a lot, man, and the world is shit. It's, I have no power here. There's Mm -hmm. violence out there I've got nothing to do with. I'm just going to try to take care of things here. And uh, that's that's an attitude I get from The Long Goodbye. Yeah. I I hadn't thought of that before, but yeah. Yeah, I think it's ingrained. Um, the plot, I don't want to ruin the plot because it's all a big whodunit. There's a couple more things I want to point out uh, that I think are noteworthy. And one is the return of uh, uh, Marty Augustine. He shows up one more time. Takes Philip Marlowe, brings him up to his office. And he's going to, he's trying to make a point. Uh-huh. He says, I want you to be completely honest with me. The only way I can do that is if you're naked. So take off your clothes. <laughs> and Ellie Gould's like, I'd prefer not to. And he's like, oh, are you shy? We'll all take off our clothes. Come on, everybody. Start getting naked. And all the dudes are like, I don't, I prefer, one guy is actually self-conscious. Like, I have a lot of scars. Just, okay, fine. You can go to the front office. Everyone else get naked, including you, Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's right. <laughs> In this weird camp before it was anybody. Yeah, Arnold Schwarzenegger, who at the time was just a bodybuilder, but yeah. a very celebrated bodybuilder. And he was getting like a couple like little roles. Uh, he shows up as like one of Marty Augustine's goons. He gets to be there. I think he grabs, like, Ellie Gould's shoulder once, and then he gets to, like, take off his clothes, and he's wearing yellow tidy whities which is an odd choice. Um, and it reminded me very much... Did you ever see the Robert Mitchum version of Farewell, My Lovely? No. Another Philip Marlowe adaptation from... But this one's from two years after. It's 1975. And this one, the difference is uh, they made uh, the Philip Marlowe character as old as Robert Mitchum was. Mm. So he's an older detective coming up from that perspective. Frankly, I don't think it's a very good movie. Uh, I think mostly it's mishandled. However, there is a scene where one of the bad guy's goons is played by Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, so there's this, they both showed up as, as like one scene heavies, <laughs> one scene bad guys who get almost nothing, actually Sylvester Stallone gets a little bit more to do, but like almost nothing to do, have nothing really important to do with the plot in two like Philip Marlowe adaptations from the 70s. It's really weird. It's so bizarre. It's such a weird coincidence. And, uh, and, and if you can track it down, watch the film The Villain as well, where he uh, oh, plays where, he, where Schwarzenegger plays a Western hero in a white hat. Weird. Just because you know he's a, is he the star well, of that one? He's not. The, well, the star is the villain. That's why it's called the villain. It's a but he plays the hero that the villain has to go up against. Okay, that sounds interesting when you put it like that. 
and and uh, it, it I I've, I've projected it before, so I've seen enough of it to know that that is one weird film. Okay. Uh, but I, I do want to actually sit down and watch it at some point before I can recommend it. But yeah, that's that's a bizarre okay. movie. Um, and with and without ruining the ending for you, I will say this: this is a movie where there is a there is a big solution. This is actually like this isn't like this isn't like in, uh, inherent vice where like it's too complicated to resolve. Everything gets more or less resolved mm-hmm. in a way that is satisfactory. It's hard to resolve a detective story like this without resorting to a very long monologue. And I think they're trying to get the way with that without it being boring. And yeah, it's mm. it's never easy. Um, but I love the ending of this movie. And apparently it's very different from the book. Because I haven't read this book. But I do do some research. Mm. Philip Marlowe resolves this movie in a way that is very interesting and very unlike the rest of the movie in some regards. However... Mm. What it boils down to is it was all about the cat. <laughs> without without there's, getting there's, into how that plays little, out, the cat was the most some, important thing after all. Some dark things happen. There's a, a big sort of spoonful of pessimism right yeah. at the end. This, it comes from a, a little bit of a bleak place. But rather than be swept up in the bleakness, uh, Marlowe just goes home and finds his creature comforts again. Uh, and yeah, it all comes down to what he did for his cat and yeah. what he was what he what uh, he did for his cat and what he did for Terry Lennox and how in the end you know the, in the end those, the cat may have been his best friend well and this film seems to argue that those things are more important to the human soul than hmm. the moral rot of the universe. This is kind of like yeah, he trying, can't control to, the corrupt trying to cops. jettison yeah. the importance of everything that's yeah. that is sold to us in typical film noir. Yeah, like the, the cops are corrupt. He knows that. He yeah. can't do anything about that. Um, Hollywood is a shallow industry that spits out people hmm. after their their value has been diminished and does very little to help them with substance abuse, which is what a lot of people turn to. Uh-huh. That's also tragic. He also has no control over that. The people he cares about, they matter more than anything to them. I'm reminded of a line from um, Casablanca, mm. where uh, Rick, who at the beginning of the movie is trying to stay out of all politics. Mm. Like, politics don't matter at Rick's Cafe American. Well, what nationality are you? I'm, doesn't a, dr- matter. I'm yeah. a drunkard, he says. Yeah, yeah, like, that's the deal. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, you come on in. I don't care if you're French, a Nazi, which is important to the movie. I don't care. You come on in, you have a drink, you don't start some shit, everyone has a good time, and then you leave. I will not get involved in any of your bullshit. I will not get involved in any of your causes. I'm staying the fuck out of it. And he says very pointedly, I stick my neck out for nobody. The line has a double meaning because ultimately, who does Rick actually stick his neck out for in Casablanca? The nobodies. Mm. The people who can't do anything for themselves the people who have no power well, and that's that's a running theme throughout his yeah. uh, um the the claude rains character corners him and says you but you did fight in the army it's like yeah i was just doing that it was but you actually fought for, like specifically for sides that were losing yeah you were you were you have you something could have you made have a lot of money you, working for another side you, you have, have it in that. you to fight for underdogs don't you and he, he kind of brushes that off mm-hmm. but yeah as, ul- as if he's outgrown it but no it's in his character u- ultimately that's what he does at the end of the movie as well yeah and i think that's true for christopher uh for christopher Marlo, for philip Marlowe. <laughs> different guy that's true for philip Marlowe as well because uh, philip Marlowe is a, 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 arguably unflappable arguably detached arguably not terribly invested in things but i think the ending of the movie clarifies he cares very very deeply but about the things he cares about and if you're not part of those things he doesn't give a shit and i think that's very consistent with his character and i actually Really love that ending so much. I really, really, I love the fuck out of this movie. I'm so I'm, glad. I'm, I'm so not glad like huge this. on Altman. Like Altman can be a little hit or miss with me. Even mm-hmm. the stuff that people really love can leave me a little cold. Um, you I, know, think, I, I, I think he's uh, he's a filmmaker for adults. You know, sure. I, I saw uh, several Altman films uh, as a teenager, and yeah. yeah, it didn't hit with me. It's yeah. like I'm, I'm watching Nashville. It's like, why am I watching this? This is depressing yeah. and long. And yeah, I love I, Nashville. I, don't understand that, I, yeah, I love I, Nashville. I'm not huge. I'm not huge on Gosford Park. I think okay. it's a, I think it's a good drama but a bad mystery. Um 
I'm trying to think what else. Um, I think the player is kind of just bitterness, and there's not a lot more to it. And I find that kind of empty and hollow. The, the fun, well, um, the fun thing about the player is compared to what Hollywood looks like today, it seems really naive. It's like network. It's been yeah. outstripped. Like the cynicism has been outstripped by reality at this point. That's fair, and I probably but, owe it a rewatch. But yeah, that's if, that's fair. if you watch sort of like at the end of the player, they're talking about how they're they're trying to take this really honest screenplay and turn it like really Hollywood, mm-hmm. and we get to see the Hollywood version at the end, and it's this big melodramatic thing where Julia Roberts is rescued out of an electric chair by Bruce Willis and that's better than what we're getting now <laughs> like that seems so much more thoughtful than what we're getting now uh, MASH I really appreciate everything he's doing with MASH I get why MASH is great and important mm. I also find it kind of hit or miss and I'm sorry I'm going to say it right now I, I, I know it's going to be controversial I think it might work even better as a sitcom Maybe they should do a sitcom of MASH instead. Uh, <laughs> um, no, gee, if, if only there was a, a long-running, critically acclaimed TV series I just version think, of I, MASH. But I think that's actually um, a better format for it. I'll, um, I'll say this. I, I do love the player. I love Three Women. Uh, that's I like, haven't seen like, that this one. That's really wonderful uh, that one I haven't t- seen. two-player character drama. The one I don't care for is McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which I know oh, really? is gonna, could get me thrown out of certain I, like bars. I kind of get it. But you also don't like Westerns, really. Uh, not really. Uh, yeah. I, I actually think McCabe and Mrs. Miller. That one took a while to grow on me. Because I think at first I was expecting something with a little bit more incident. Um, but no, McCabe and Mrs. Miller really, really grew on me over time. There is a scene. I'm not going to run for it. There is a scene on a bridge then in McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which is one of the saddest and most suspenseful scenes in movie <laughs> history. Um, but just kills me every fucking uh, time. <laughs> that poor guy. Um, but uh, no, I like, I like McCabe and Mrs. Miller a lot. Yeah, so, I saw, like, yeah. I saw The Long Goodbye and I saw uh, another film he did just the next year called California Split. See, I'm not a huge uh, fan of California with Split. With Elliot Gould and George Seagal, uh, I found, which... I found that movie... I, I probably which just watched that one again it's, also, it's like a, love it's it, a but gambling like, crime movie, but it's more about this like really cantankerous relationship between these two men. I found it so freewheeling that I got annoyed at them. Uh, that, like, which, which is fair. I think yeah. they're supposed to be kind of annoying characters. Yeah, but I think he did too good a job uh, if that's okay. the case. But that's another one I will rewatch too. I haven't seen that in probably yeah, like 20 years. So, so yeah, I, I, yeah, I feel like I need to go back for McCabe and Mrs. Miller because mm. I think I saw maybe too young. I think that's another film okay. for adults. I think you'd like it. Um, I'm on record for with my thoughts about Popeye. But uh, that you think it's the best movie ever? <laughs> yes. Good. I think it's the best I pay attention. movie ever. I love Popeye. It's very atypical of Altman in some ways. In other ways, it's very Altman, and I love it. It's such a bizarre, like, visual left field from what he does, but what it's actually trying to do is, like, what he's always done a really good job of is, like, create a giant, like, community of characters... And uh, and the place in which they live in all of his movies, but here they're, it's they're like cartoons. An imaginary cartoon. Yeah, here they're cartoons, yeah, and yeah. so all of that is gigantic. Everything about that movie is gigantic. I love that movie. <laughs> the movie's great. Um, but anyway, I'd never seen this Altman movie. This is rivaling Popeye for me. It's my favorite Altman. Oh, okay. Movie. I really do love this a lot. I, I, I'm going to revisit this again. Go go see Three Women. Uh, I know you, I need you, to see. You've that. seen Nashville, right? Oh yeah, Nashville's great. Okay. Um, Nashville might be his quote unquote greatest. It, it's movie. often called like it's his like, most celebrated. It's like when you it, Nashville is the kind of movie that when you watch it, you're like, how the hell did this not win the Academy Award for Best Picture? Uh, and then you see what it was up against that year. What that was seventy seven. Uh, hold no. on, one second. Let me. Nashville seventy five. Yeah. Uh, so seventy five was the. Okay, so here's here's this is one of the toughest years of the Oscars ever. This is what was nominated for Best Picture in '75: Nashville, Jaws, okay, Dog Day Afternoon, okay, Barry Lyndon, and the one that won and swept the Oscars, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Okay, fine. That's, that's a that's really fine. and you that's pretty fine. much any one of those movies. Maybe Barry Lyndon might be a bit of an eyebrow raiser, even though it's great. But like, that's a great it's, year it's, for Best it's Picture. It's great, but it's a strange kind of great. Like, yeah. it's it's not the kind of you don't film think that it's going to win. Best should Picture. get a bunch of awards. Yeah, but well, I think it won Best Cinematography. But regardless, like, it's no, I think it won Best. Hold on, Barry Lyndon, I think won Best Costume Design, which I believe was kind of a joke since they just used other costumes, like costumes for other movies. No, they, no, they used historical costumes. Oh, they, didn't, they like, like, actually... got them from like museums and shit. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> it's got the yeah. Kubrick. Uh, th- this was sort of Barry Lyndon, from what I understand, was the echo of uh, Kubrick's Napoleon project. That yeah. He tried to get off the ground for many, many years and yeah. eventually just sort of fell through. Um, 
I, I say just sort of fell through. There's a huge history. Oh, yeah. The, There's this, a this book dedicated thing, yeah. to this. Um, you can totally find out more if you want. But yeah, he ended up making this other historical picture, and it's like really sardonic and bitter and, and like comes to this big like kind of non-ending. But he tried to make it really authentic as well. So yeah, mm-hmm. he used authentic costumes and authentic lighting. I, to be fair, so I it's think, a gorgeous I, looking movie, but it doesn't feel like a historical epic, you know? I love Barry Lyndon. I think Barry Lyndon is... Yeah subtly maybe Kubrick's best film but whatever it's it's super great but yeah, so it's a long goodbye but let's let we should get back on track uh, anyway the long goodbye is brilliant please see the long goodbye if you haven't already uh, it is currently on Criterion not sure for how long so enjoy it while you can uh, next time on Critically Reclaimed we're going to be looking at thrillers on Tubi T-U-B-I which is a completely free for the moment anyway streaming service which has a surprisingly good selection. Is it a comprehensive selection? Hmm. No. Is it a fucking awesome and weird selection? Yes. <laughs> they have all kinds of weird shit that you wouldn't find on other streaming services. Old horror movies from the 70s, westerns that nobody ever talks about anymore, romantic comedies that have never been re- released in any other format. Uh, and we're going to be looking at thrillers, We chose that uh, genre arbitrarily. And the nominees are... And if you can head on over to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, you can vote for these. Mm. Raise the Titanic, which is a movie about raising the Titanic. (laughs) It is a movie about an attempt to not just explore the Titanic at the bottom of the ocean, but actually remove it from the bottom of the ocean and bring it home. Mm. That's a good idea. Huge and a great bu- use of resources. Huge budget, gigantic bomb. I've heard the legends. I've never seen it. Uh, yeah. There's a movie starring Clive yeah. Owen uh, that I'm not too familiar with called Trust, uh, which sounds really severe. Uh, um, it, it came out in 2010, and mm-hmm. it, it was it's directed by David Schwimmer, and uh, it is about um, it's about sex trafficking and mm. uh, how the internet was being used to sort of invade people's minds and instigate a lot of uh, horrible sex crimes. Yeah, invade and, people's uh, minds, but not like in a Cronenberg way, like in an actual like, like, like no, rea- no, the reality based. I, I mean, as it did it, way, yeah, yeah, like uh, in a real world sort of way. Um, and it was dismissed at the time. I remember as being kind of a scare film of mm-hmm. the internet. Don't trust the internet. We're afraid of machines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because it was directed by David Schwimmer, it didn't have a lot of like artistic credibility, but there were critics who came out and called it one of the best films of the year that year. Okay. Uh, Roger Ebert gave it four stars at the time. Right. I never saw it and I kind of wanted to just because it was highly acclaimed. So I want to see if this was worth Fair anything. Enough. All right. Uh, next up on the list, we've got stay a 2005 thriller starring Ewan McGregor, Naomi Watts, Ryan Gosling, Bob Hoskins, Janine Garofalo. The list goes on. It is about a psychiatrist who is trying to heal one of his patients but might be losing his mind himself. Ha-ha! And what is real? What is unreal? We never know. I don't know, but it's uh, from uh, Oscar nominee Mark Forster, uh, who, of course, did Finding Neverland, so bully for him. And uh, we've also got Amoris Peros, which is the, I believe it's the first film from Alejandro Gonzalez in Yuri 2. That's right. Uh, and uh, it was the one that kind of basically an- made him an international name. him to the world. And now, yeah. now he's got two directing Oscars to his name. And yeah. uh, and, and boy for him. Indeed. I- I've liked and it's about, one or it's, two of his movies. And it's about uh, people whose lives are interconnected by a, a, a car crash. Mm-hmm. Which is uh, a format he would play with in films like 21 Grams. Where there's another horrible incident that connects people who might not realize who might otherwise have ever met and uh, same thing with Babel where people are interconnected in ways they couldn't possibly have understood uh, but uh, yeah so you can vote for any of those movies over the critically acclaimed network uh, we will review the winner on next week's critically reclaimed and then the cycle will begin anew um, and that is it that is it for critically reclaimed thank you for listening we did it right in with your favorite Robert Altman movies sure we'd love that um and uh, yeah, so you can, in fact, you can write in if you want to talk about anything we discussed on this episode or anything else you were curious to talk about or want to hear us espouse uh, about or, or ponder, if you will. Uh, our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We might read your email in an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. 
Whitney, mm-hmm. tell us about our P.O. Box. Uh, if you'd like to write us an actual physical letter, we do have a P.O. Box. It is uh, Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. And uh, also we are on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Once again, that's patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. We have exclusive shows about every single film ever nominated for Best Picture, Star Trek, Batman. We do commentary tracks, online hangouts, the works. All of that is all over there. Also, we have a soap store, Etsy.com. Uh, look for Salt Cat Soap on uh, Etsy or on social media, and you will find links to designer soaps designed by myself and my partner M. Lapis De Silva and Whitney has another uh, podcast he wants to tell you about as well that's right over on uh, the network The Screen's Margins run by the uh, wonderful B. Peterson uh, they and I talk about whatever is on Ovid that week uh, mm. Ovid is a really good streaming service that has all of the deep cut art house stuff that uh, you saw playing at your local museum uh, for, for one week but you couldn't get to because it was at 11am uh, on a Wednesday mm. Um, they have thing, yeah, think little, uh, acclaimed international cinema makes its way on there. We just finished up talking about, uh, the, uh, we decided to call it the nostalgia trilogy from Chilean filmmaker Patricio Guzman. There's uh, the Pearl Button, Nostalgia for the Light and the Cordillera of Dreams. There's a, a series of three documentaries about the natural world, Chilean geography and dictatorship and death. Uh, it's really, really fantastic. Like and just do. on the last episode, we talked about the rising filmmaker Yang Mingming, a Chinese filmmaker who uh, did a, a really wonderful short called Female Filmmakers. Or female directors is the title, and another one called "Girls Always Happy," about where she plays a, a young woman and just about the really horrible relationship she has with her mother. Nice, uh, both very good films and some interesting conversations. Sounds good. Okay, mm-hmm. well, anyway, that's all about all about Ovid, and uh, yeah, we'll be back next week with something on TV. Until then, this podcast is no more for now. Later, later will be more. <laughs> Take care. <laughs>